There are many reasons I'm glad to be here today. One is I consider myself a Texan, and I actually said when Carolyn and I were in college at Baylor that I would live anywhere to serve the Lord as long as it was in Texas. <laughs> we got married in 1979, and by mid-1981 we were in Saudi Arabia for six years, Southern California for 29 years, and now Charlotte, North Carolina for almost seven years. And the reason is, from our standpoint, is we go where we think we'll be most useful. And I guess Texas has so many great churches and ministries going on. We're not really useful here. We are is Southern California, Saudi Arabia, and even Charlotte, North Carolina are more needy. But both of our mothers are living. One's 90 and one's 86. So we come here often to be with them. Both have lost their husbands in the last year and a half. And actually, my mother-in-law is now coming to see us on Wednesday, and my mother just came back to Austin area this past Wednesday. So, And then we'll be here at Christmas and other times to be with them. Uh, this is kind of an unusual parenting seminar. A lot of times a parenting seminar, somebody gets up who has believing kids, believing grandkids, daughters who marry missionaries, sons who are preaching or whatever else. And we've had real struggles with our kids. And I've also had a lot of opportunity to counsel people who are in struggle. Even this past week, I've met with families who have had to send children into treatment centers. I've got three of those cases going on right now with drugs, alcohol. Um, And so the way kind of the flow of my writing about parenting and speaking about parenting is... If you want the basics, go get Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. Uh, go get Age of Opportunity by Paul Tripp. They're really good books. Uh, Sam Crabtree has a nice book about disciplining our children. I could commend to you as well. Um, but what happened to me, and actually I can kind of give a sequence, would be that um, this has now been 20 years ago, and I had all these cases of people with rebellious teens, and I... You know, it's great to read the books about what to do when things go right, but what do you do when the wheels come off? And so I co-authored, this will be the second talk today, is When Good Kids Make Bad Choices, and how do you deal with rebellion, typically teenage rebellion. Um, Another issue I had to face was uh, I had people with adult kids, and you had adult kids living at home, and they were not going to work, and they were doing wrong things, and what do I do with these adult kids who will never leave, and other conflicts, marriage, everything else. And so, again, there wasn't anything I could give to people, so I co-authored, you know, You you Never Stop Being a Parent, which is the fourth talk (laughs) today. And then another burden was just the big question. This is the first talk today is going to be, why do kids turn out the way they do? What does the Bible say? Is there some formula if you just follow the instructions that your kids will turn out just the way you want? And so this little mini book is Parenting is More Than a Formula, And that's where I'm going to start today. And then tomorrow in Sunday school, for those who are around then, uh, the the last thing that's happened in my life is I'm now at a seminary with all these, whatever, Gen Zs and millennials. I'm in a church full of millennials. We're the old people in our church. And I see all these young families, uh, young adults, and many of them are having, their adult children having trouble with their parents in my generation who are trying to micromanage them, who aren't following the rules for the grandkids. And so uh, this is the first book I've written my kids will read. It's How to Love Difficult Parents. (laughs) So 
I'll mention so all that stuff's in the bookstore. My I sell books just at my cost. I'm just happy somebody wanted to publish them, and even happier if somebody will buy them. My publisher's very happy if somebody will buy them. I also have some free things over there um, that are counseling cards. I'll probably refer to them now and then while I'm speaking, but there's one on anger, uh, sadness or depression, repentance, and rejection. But my line is, is that when I started biblical counseling in the 90s, we would try to get people to read books. They wouldn't read the books. Then we started writing mini books. They still don't read the mini books. Now we give them cards. (laughs) And sometimes they'll use the cards. Anyway, um, Psalm 127 Uh, we read, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. And so the scripture tells us that children are a blessing from God. In the beginning, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. He repeated that to Noah. And it's interesting now as our culture is becoming more most, more post-Christian, and I think right after lunch we're going to talk about LGBTQ issues with our kids and grandkids. Uh, but another tendency, another less reported factor is that people aren't having kids anymore. And you look at Japan, Western Europe... China, uh, and even the U.S., but some are like half of replacement rate for their population. In the United States, if it wasn't for immigration, we would be well below replacement rate. People aren't having kids. And that's actually something that makes us as Christians stand out is we value children. But it's a sacrifice to have kids. I just love the fact, I mean, our church, the median family is like mid-30s with four kids more on the way. Uh, husband has a trade, wife is doing at home, maybe doing a little Proverbs 31 side stuff. And I just love that. And I think we will, that's one way we're going to be light in a world where people don't care. Now, sadly, they want then to take our kids and mess them up. But we, you know, that's something that we stand firm in. But we care passionately about our children. Uh, John writes in Third John, I have no greater joy than that my children walk in the truth. And he's speaking spiritually. And yet, of course, it resonates for us as parents, is there's nothing in life we want more than to see our children walking with the Lord and honoring him. And our lives, our happiness is so much bound up in our children. And, you know, I'm at a stage now where my kids are 41, 38, and 35, And it's still a big part of life, which is the fourth talk. Um, But you've seen statistics recently that are describing deconversions and deconstructions. And the most famous case was Josh Harris, uh, who had been a pastor and written I Kiss Dating Goodbye and other books. And he wrote some pretty good books. And that touches me, too, because we were in the the first generation of homeschoolers that his dad was a leader in, and he and his brothers, we would see them at conferences, uh, selling their materials and entrepreneurs that they were. And and so there are so many Christian people who grew up, young people who grew up in Christian families, and they abandon their faith as they become adults. And, of course, 
people would love it if we could say, well, if you just do this thing the Bible says, then your kids will all turn out great. My premise is going to be the Bible doesn't teach that. And we have to come to grips with the Bible, what it actually says, especially in terms of why our kids turn out the way they do. We need to be watching out for extra biblical formulas that go beyond the Bible and telling people how to raise their kids and, and really intrude on, hum- on parental freedom and responsibility. And then we also need to watch out for deterministic formulas that just say, you just do this this way. Parenting is like baking a cake. You follow the recipe. It's all going to turn out great. Um, and so, but yeah, why are so many parenting books sold, including to Christians? It's because we really care. And I've been a believer since the early 70s and, uh, you know, raised our kids quite a while ago now. And I've seen in my lifetime the various formulas, you know, that I was born when prayer was still allowed in schools and people kind of trusted the school to work with the family and respect religion. Uh, then as public schools fell apart, a lot of Christian schools got started. They go, okay, well, we're going to send our kid to the Christian school and that will somehow they'll be trained in the word of God and that will keep them in the fold. And then I was in the generation that said, well, that's not working. We're all going to homeschool. And so we were, when we started homeschooling, it was like, are you sure you can do that? Is that legal? Are you going to get thrown in jail? And we weren't sure. We were like paying lawyers to keep free. Um, and then, oh, not even that, but now we're going to do classical homeschooling or classical conversations or, you know, whatever the particular method is. Uh, when I first became a Christian was about the time Jim Dobson came out with Dare to Discipline and uh, that, you know, psychologist actually saying you ought to discipline your kids and spank them. It was kind of against Dr. Spock back in the 60s who said just let them, you know, go free. Uh, there was Growing Kids God's Way in the Ezos back in the 80s and 90s. And I'll talk about that a little bit as we go. And this is exactly how you do it. I got involved in uh, Bill Gothard's ministry when I was a brand new Christian and went to some of those seminars. And he's got all these lists. If you just follow the list, it's all going to work out. Um, I love when Shepherding a Child's Heart came out. I'm going to talk a little more about that as we go. It sold millions of co- over a million copies. And it's kind of cool because uh, Ted Tripp is a Reformed Baptist like I am. And uh, I actually was talking on the phone, and people were you were talking to Ted Tripp. And yes, there are parenting gurus uh, like the Pearls, No Greater Joy. And I'm going to be concerned about some of the things they say. Lately, the big thing has been grace parenting, gospel-centered parenting. Everything's gospel-centered these days. If you're not gospel-centered, you're in trouble. Uh, I'm even going to talk about some imbalance that can take place there. And then also people have hoped the church. I mean, I think your church has an Awana here. And a lot of people think, well, I'm going to send my kids to Sunday school. Oh, Sunday school is originally to evangelize uh, kids that were from non-Christian families. And uh, summer camps, my uh, father-in-law was the director of Sky Ranch for many years. And Carolyn and I actually worked one summer there together uh, before college and, you know, youth groups and And then, of course, several years ago, then there was Family Integrated Church, if you've heard of that, where, no, the problem is youth groups and nurseries and the family's all going to be together and the father's the only person teaching his kids and not all these other people. And anyway, (laughs) so I'm going to take a straw poll. How many of you went to public schools primarily? How many of you were homeschooled? How many of you went to Christian schools? At least some. Okay. So my point would be, <laughs> there are examples of both success and failure in all categories. 
Uh, I went to public schools for the most part, and I just fought them the whole time. I was converted at the beginning of high school, and I just, in high school and college, stood up to the pagans, and it actually strengthened my faith to defend it. Some people get crushed in that environment, uh, and I think parents have to make choices when they see that happening. And uh, their Christian schools, I learned, are often where the people who were trying to homeschool or have out-of-control kids, the Christians send them to the Christian school hoping they'll help, and we actually did that for a couple of years. That'll be the next talk, or couple, the next talk, how well, we did that. Um, but even homeschool, I think, again, I was kind of in the early generation, and there have been people reflecting now, you know, 20-something years in, 25, 30 years in, like, this hasn't turned out exactly like we thought it would in 1985 when this all started. And there are homeschooled kids, and, you know, especially like Josh Harris was like the poster boy for the homeschool movement, and... It's like somebody drew all over the poster uh, nasty things. So sometimes people would talk about like this multi-generational dream and you've got the picture of the great-grandparents and the grandparents and you're like, everybody's a Christian on the cover of the homeschool magazine back when they used to make magazines. (laughs) And um, I've been actually in my daily Bible reading, I just read straight through the Bible four chapters a day over and over and over again. And I've just finished Chronicles. And the Bible doesn't reflect in terms of just the history. There aren't many examples in Scripture of a righteous generation after generation after generation. And you can just take Kings and Chronicles, right? Good king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king. I mean, um, you think of the early families, the first family we'll talk about, Cain and Abel, you know, that... Um, the Bible is actually probably more of a source for bad examples than good examples in terms of what happens in parenting. Um, and there are many, you know, Ecclesiastes 12, 12 says of the making of books, there is no end. Well, the making of parenting books, there is no end. And every time you think you've heard it, somebody comes out and says, actually, the whole problem was we weren't teaching them creation apologetics well enough. And that's the foundationary thing. And so you've got to do creation science with your kids as they're, you know, in the crib or whatever, and that's somehow going to make everything good. So my concern is that parents need to use discernment as they evaluate approaches to parenting. Uh, Acts 17.11 talks about the Bereans who examined what they were told to see if it fits the Word of God. And anecdotal stories, and this is just where Christians need to learn to think carefully, stories don't prove things. I mean, we're used to that in other areas, right? If somebody comes to you and says, God spoke to me, and and especially if it contradicts Scripture, you're going to say, well, that's a nice story, but, you know, I believe the Bible, and if your story contradicts the Bible, you know, it's not the authority. And so, you know, in these books, they'll say, oh, yeah, well... You know, the pearls would say, yeah, all of our kids, when they never, ever rebelled, and we just followed this, and everybody who's ever, you know, been in our system, it all works out great. Um, all of our children are happy and healthy, and it's all good. Well, their stories don't prove what they're teaching is actually biblical. And even sometimes, I've actually been listening to a book I may reference later that's kind of a Christian integrationist book I'm doing for research. And sometimes people can use lots and lots of verses and you think you're hearing something biblical, and I think Gothard would be an example of that. But if you actually examine what they're concluding from the verses, the verses don't prove what they're saying. Back when the family integrated movement was uh, building, <clears throat> we had people in our church who wanted to push us in that direction, and the elders said, hey, you're free to do that. You're free to have your kids, but you're not going to make us shut down our nursery and our youth program 
because uh, of your convictions. And they gave me, among the things they gave me was a, back then a, maybe a tape uh, or a CD of a guy talking, and he was talking because the family integrated people also, they got into betrothal. Like courting is too liberal where they actually can kind of choose each other with parental agreement. Betrothal was the parents choose. And so there were people in the homeschool movement and the family were teaching betrothal. And so the guy gives a sermon on Matthew 1 where it talks about Mary and Joseph being betrothed. And he tries to use that as an imperative. Therefore, we all need to practice betrothal. He went on for an hour talking about that. Well, and I could just see all the people. Yeah, that sounds really good. Well, I think quite frankly, we'd all like to choose who our kids marry. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Um, that, you know, and sometimes even what's dem- what they say is demonstrably false from Scripture. Here's a quote from one of these books. Your home environment determines how your kids turn out. That's not biblical. I'm going to show you that. So we need to be good Bereans. And many parenting formulas are what I would call legalistic. Now, there's two forms of legalism. One is the worst form, which is adding to the gospel and saying you're saved by faith plus works, faith plus sacraments, or something like that. But another form of legalism is for those who believe the gospel, requiring more of them than the Bible does. And in parenting formulas, you all must do it this way. There's no other way to do it but my way, but it goes beyond the scriptures. And this is something, a general principle for us as biblical counselors. I have a very vivid memory in the 90s of Jay Adams speaking at an IBCD conference. He did two talks on legalism and counseling. And they're actually, I think, on the IBCD website now. But this warning counselors, because we want to be able to give people clear answers. This is what you should do. And sometimes the answer from the Bible is you have choices within this range. And And so to tell people, to compel people, to go beyond what the Bible says is another form of legalism, and there's danger to that. And they'll make their methodology law while denying other approaches have any validity. And I'll give you an example. The Ezos wrote a book that had a lot of appeal saying, put your baby on a schedule, let her cry it out, and that's going to make for a happier home, and she's going to learn the discipline of sleeping when she's three months old or something like that. Well, I listened to another book yesterday by a Christian, and he said... That's going to damage bonding of a baby with her parents. It's the worst thing you can do. And you're going to have infant depression if they... Sorry, that's what he said. Um, and so you ought to do demand feeding. And then you're going to have probably mothers in the same church. And it's almost like split over, will I demand feed? Will I make them cry it out? And, but here's another thing, by the way. Kids are different. The kid that you were able to train to sleep the night has a sibling two years later. It doesn't work. <laughs> But the Bible never promised if you let her cry it out at three months, she'll sleep eight hours. And they'll make it sound that way. Similarly with spanking. I mean, the Bible teaches physical discipline. And the pearls talk about like a piece of, uh, what is it, hose or something that you beat them with. And they would say, don't damage. But others would say, oh, you go to Home Depot and you get two paint stirs and you glue them together and you go nine inches beyond the target and wrist only, not arm or something um, and some people impose their rules on others. I, there was one time a friend of mine, they were planting a church, and in their constitution, they put in the constitution, we all homeschool. Well, that, home, that wouldn't work very well in China or even Germany, and um, the Bible doesn't compel us to do that. And, it's like, well, and I've been seeing churches where if you put your kids in public school, you're in sin. 
Now, I never did put my kids in public school, but I can't say from the Bible they're in sin to do so. Um, and sometimes the extra biblical rules become more important to people than what the Bible actually teaches. Jesus warns in his day about the Pharisees, the Jews, Mark 7, 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And these extra biblical formulas sometimes fail. I remember hearing Bill Gothard say at a seminar, just keep spanking your child until she is sweet. I'm thinking Bill Gothard is single and has never had a child. (laughs) There's not a promise in the Bible if you just keep at it, their heart will change. The Bible says, yeah, we need to discipline, but... Um, it all, you know, when they write the book or give the seminar, it all sounds so easy. I mean, the book I'm listening to now, every time you follow his advice, everything turns out great. If you don't, everything is a disaster. But they're different kids or different ways. You have potty training, you know, M&M, Starburst, you know, what are you going to use? Well, your kid may be on the autism spectrum and he doesn't make a connection between M&Ms and what he was supposed to do. And But when the system fails, it doesn't mean the Bible has failed. And there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, we found that M&Ms were a great way to get kids to go to the toilet. If it works for you, that's great. But the Bible doesn't say you have to do that. This is, so in general, and I, I don't have time to do this exhaustively because it's not my main topic, but it's important that in my mind, Ephesians 6, 4 summarizes every single thing the Bible says about parenting. And it's actually really simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there are three things we need to do as parents, as our children are growing up. We need to discipline them. Discipline is establishing standards and enforcing the standards. And don't touch this. When I say no, you stop, you know, in an age-appropriate way. It's necessary because foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And so, and, and discipline is hard work. And this is kind of interesting. I mean, when your children are small, they're exhausting trying to get them to follow these standards. When they get older, you've got a new, more complex set of problems. But when they're young, you, you establish control through discipline. But that's not enough. Uh, they also need to be instructed. And this is the thing where I, you know, the parenting books that talk about the gospel more, or even in shepherding a child's heart, you, you know, I think a lot of the early parenting stuff I relied upon, um, there were good books as far as they went, but it was very heavy on here's how to get control of your kids through discipline and structure, and not enough about instructing their hearts, because you can create little Pharisees with a bunch of rules, or as soon as they're no longer under your authority, they go nuts. And so you're, you're also instructing their heart. And Deuteronomy 6 is a great passage for that. You, know, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It says, these commandments shall be first on your heart. And then you shall teach them to your sons when you walk by the way, when you sit down. And, and so part of parenting is to train our children. And, and we can't delegate that to a church or a school or anybody else. We can use them as partners with us. Um, but to, to teach them, and we'll get into more later even some of the specifics in another talk, but to prepare them for adulthood. The book of Proverbs is really a book of what a father should do to prepare his child for adult life. And then the third is don't provoke them to anger. And Colossians 3.21 says don't exasperate them. 
And I've got in the back, in the, in the end notes, uh, Lou Priola has a great book, The Heart of Anger, where he gives 25 ways we as parents provoke our children to anger through inconsistency and modeling parental anger and all these other categories. And so favoritism, other such things. And so, I mean, those are the, the simple. I realize you could have a whole seminar where all we did was Ephesians 6.4. That's not my purpose today. My point here would be what is not specifically mandated in the Bible is a family choice. And different families are going to apply these principles differently. And we need to respect the freedom of other families to do so. If they're violating Ephesians 6.4 and they're not disciplining their kids, not instructing their kids, sinfully provoking them to anger, we need to help them. But people are going to go about it differently, and we need to respect those differences. Uh, I will also add that sometimes there can be a culture in a church in which the, the leaders say, oh, you're free to train your kids as you decide. But then among the families in the church, there's an immense amount of social pressure to participate in the Christian school or um, homeschool or whatever all the right-thinking people do. And we have to watch out for that as well, or even our own relationships. Well, you decided this, and you want affirmation that everybody else does that. Be careful to respect people's freedom to make their own choices in that area. And I think one thing that happened in our church for a while is because all the elders were homeschooling their kids. And we said, you can do what you think is right for your family. But quite frankly, the mothers would talk about what they were doing, and the mothers who weren't doing it kind of felt excluded, and churches are complicated. again. So this is an important aspect. It's actually in the notes. There are things in the notes that repeat because I don't always give all these talks sequentially. So this will be something that's all the sets of notes. I'm going to cover it now. Then I can skip over it when I get to two other times when it pops up. But this is one of the most important things I learned as I was grappling initially with the people I was counseling and then with my own kids. And this is the question of why do children turn out the way that they do? So what does the Bible say about this? And I think it's profound that you have the first family their two first two sons, one was a worshiper of God and the other was a murderer who had to be taken away from the family. And this has continued to happen throughout biblical history and it continues to happen in our churches. And so broadly speaking, I see that there are three factors, three and a half, I'll explain, that, you know, that influence how our children turn out. We as parents have influence. We're responsible to follow Ephesians 6.4, and I really believe everything in Ephesians 6.4, I mean, everything in Proverbs about parenting really can be subsumed under a lot of a discipline and instruction in Proverbs. And there's hope that God blesses faithful parenting. Correct your son and he will give you joy. We have examples, you know, like David had said of him in Adonijah in 1 Kings 1, that he, his father had never crossed him at any time. And that we'll get a lot of the failures in the Bible are actually with adult kids. But, you know, when fathers fail uh, to, to do what they're supposed to do, they are complicit in the destruction of their own children. Samuel, in 1 Samuel, you have Eli as another example of that. It says, discipline your son while there is hope. Don't desire his death. And parents who have rebellious kids, you know, the father of fool has no joy. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. And so we have an influence, but it's an influence. It's not determinative. It's not like baking a cake or a pie. You say, what about Proverbs 22.6? You know, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
And this is an important aspect of how we look at the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is not a checkbook of promises. The book of Proverbs is a book of, of wisdom, of how godly people live in a fallen world. And so it is a general statement of truth that families who are faithful in training their children will experience joy, and those who are unfaithful will be miserable. And we see that working itself out in the world. But it doesn't mean in every single case they'll be converted. And to give you, so Proverbs contain an infallibly true statement of wisdom is not necessarily an unconditional promise because the world has fallen. Uh, Another example would be Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4, which says, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now, is that an absolute and infallible promise? No, there are people who were diligent in their businesses, and when COVID came, their kind of business was wrecked. There are so many restaurants and small businesses that went out of business and franchises that it wasn't because they were lazy. Calamity happens in a fallen world, things we can't control. So generally speaking, hardworking people will do better, but in a fallen world, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. On the other hand, you know, lazy people generally experience poverty, although during COVID the government tried to stop that. Um, But sluggards win the lottery sometimes. Sluggards inherit money. And so it's a true statement of wisdom, but it's not an unconditional promise. And that's because the Bible also teaches that our children are responsible for choices they make. They're going to be, and here's where there's kind of the other influence. The book of Proverbs is full of this. The father is pleading with the son. He wants to be an influence on the son to choose the Lord, to choose wisdom. But the father warns there are going to be other voices out there. And you have the figure of Madame Folly. And Madame Folly is not, I mean, part of it is stolen water is sweet. And a lot of it is sexual immorality. But it's also drunkenness. It's foolish speech. It's, it's everything about the world that's bad. And, and essentially the point being made in Proverbs, the early chapters of Proverbs are essentially evangelistic discourses. Listen, my son. And you know, wisdom cries in the sh- streets. And she says, you know, if you come to me, I will make you rich. I'll be uh, you know, a, a garland to your head and all of these blessings. But if you don't listen to me, I will laugh at your calamity. And so it, it, the whole book of Proverbs is saying, you, your children are making a choice. And you want to present wisdom to your children. But you can't. Make them choose. In reality, what happens is that you know, when they're small children, they think at a certain level. As they reach adolescence and young adulthood, they start thinking for themselves. And sooner or later, they come to a point where they're either saying, my parents are crazy and the world is right, or my parents are right and the world is wrong. And no matter how much you try to shelter them, the voice of the world is going to come to their ears. My friend said, you can't go to Walmart without the voice of the world coming to your kids. Sooner or later, they're going to realize how weird you are. And they're going to feel the pressure of being accepted. And so, um, you know, that's a choice they make. Not all rebellion is the fault of parents. Uh, our children, actually, when the book, When Good Kids Make Bad Choices, was um, written, the publisher controlled a lot of things. And I hate the title they gave it because I said, there are no good kids. Psalm 51, I was conceived in sin, David says. Uh, you think about what's the difference between Cain and Abel? Uh, you know, Cain did not have a smartphone. He did not have internet. They didn't have bad neighbors, right? Didn't have public schools to mess him up. 
It was the wickedness of his heart that made him refuse to worship God properly and kill his brother. Um, and each had a responsible choice they made. And a remarkable thing, and it's been of comfort to me because I have unbelieving adult kids, but God himself knows what it's like to have rebellious kids. In the Old Testament, he refers to Israel as his son sometimes. And he says, "Son." well, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, it says, you know, Hear, O heavens, sons I have reared up, but they have revolted against me. And I think it's a, it's a cry of anguish. In Jeremiah 2, it says, In vain I have struck your sons. They accepted no chastening. They refused to take correction. So God understands what parents of rebellious kids are going through. Um, and so, again, as our children reach adulthood, and there's a passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing because of time, but if you want to look at Ezekiel 18, it's really interesting. In Ezekiel 18, you have three generations. And... Beginning in verse 5, I'm using it illustratively, and it says in verse 5, if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness, does not eat of the mountain shrine. So basically it's going to go through things from the law and said, he doesn't do any of the bad things the law forbids. He does all the good things the law tells him to do. He takes care of widows. Verse 9, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances and deals faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. But look at verse 10. Then he, that is that very righteous man, may have a violent son who sheds blood and does all these things to his brother. And so this is a man, he defiles his neighbor's wife. And you know, it's just he goes through all the good things his father did, he doesn't do. All the bad things father didn't do, he does do. And it says in verse 13, and he will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. You don't say, well, the father must have fouled up to have such a son. You know, this son chose to reject the good ways of his father. And then remarkably, there's a third generation. Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins, which he has committed in observing. He does not do likewise. And so in the third generation, this guy sees the wickedness of his father. Maybe he also saw the righteousness of his grandfather. I don't know. But he rejects. He goes back to the way of obeying God. And and, you know, and the, the point being that each one is responsible through life and the choice they make. Uh, we'll talk after lunch a lot about the warnings Jesus gave. But in Luke 12, he says, don't think I've come to bring peace but division. And there's going to be uh, three against two and two against three in the same family and father against son and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And these are the divisions that we see taking place in Christian families. And it's, But it's not new. It's been going on ever since the creation which means that the third influence, primarily influence, that we need is God's grace is needed to save our kids. They are born dead in their trespasses and sins. They're born sinners, and they need to be regenerated. They need the grace of God. And the child born in Mecca to Muslim parents and the child born in the most wonderful Christian church in the world, certainly the child born in the great Christian church, have privileges, and God often works through families and the means of grace in the church to save those who are there, but it does not always work out that way. We need the grace of God. I will also add that if there was a formula that would save your children if you followed it, you'd fail anyway. (laughs) If your children were blank slates, we would have wrecked them by now. And if we were perfect parents, 
they would have rebelled. We need the grace of God. And you have many stories now where you know, Heath Lambert, some of you know, and if you heard his testimony, his mother was drunk and you know, like shooting guns at him and doing all these crazy things, like the most messed up woman you could imagine. And here you have Heath, who's a great father and pastor and biblical counselor. And that's what the grace of God, it can pull you out of the depths. But what human sin can do is take people, and I have so many friends. When I, when I wrote the book about rebellious kids, I had authors and people whose books are for sale back there haven't talked about their struggles publicly the way I have, who have called me and said, I'm going through this too. I'm going to talk to somebody. And this week I was talking to an author whose books I saw there, and he's had one child who died of drugs, another who's in rehab for alcohol, and his heart is broken. And he's like one of the most wonderful men I've ever known. Again, we all would look and say we fell short also. So, uh, third major point is beware of parental determinism. I'll probably go through this fairly quick. I think I've kind of made the point. Um, the pearls write, homeschool children are the product of their parents and the culture they provide. And then it, it actually says that melted chocolate hardens into whatever shape that it's dispensed into. If I pour chocolate purposefully into a God-shaped mold, I will have helped make something worth raving about. Um, but I would add that it's not just the pearls. Doug Wilson writes, under the promised grace of God, fathers can control whether or not their children grow up to walk with God. And then he says, at the same time, children of obedient believers will become believers. I think he's wrong. I, I, I've already proven, I think, that that's not what the Bible says. It's attractive, but then it's also devastating when your kids are the ones who aren't believing. It's like your, your, your kids not walking with the Lord is because you didn't follow the formula. And of course, I already got the point. If there was a formula, they can always, you know, if, if ever a child try, a parent tries to follow the formula and it doesn't work out, these people can say, well, it's user error. If you'd have followed the formula right, it would have been okay. Um, but again, God is the perfect parent, and he had rebellious kids. Uh, some would say, well, just being around somebody Christ-like. Judas was around somebody Christ-like, <laughs> and he still rebelled. Sin is a big problem. And formulas can lead to pride, as if, look what I did. I saved my kids by my works. I'm a winner. And there's actually another book that says, Observe from Winning Parents. Winning parents are those whose children are obedient, respectful, know God's will, and live faithful Christian lives. Well, if they're winners, they're losers. Um, here's another statement from the Pearls. Any parent with an emotional maturity level higher than the average 13-year-old can, with a proper vision and knowledge of the technique, have happy, obedient children. We raised five children, and none of them ever rebelled against our authority. Now, if that's true, we would have to live with that. I would have to live with that. But it's not biblical. And it's hurtful. Here's, an, here's one. Again, this is in a book. I'm quoting from a book published by a reform publisher. It's actually about the gospel and parenting of all things. And here's what it says. It's, if a father is doing his job, then his children will not become homosexual. He says in the book, he quotes saying, I never saw a homosexual who had a good relationship with his father. 
We have come to the conclusion that a constructive, supportive, warmly related father precludes the possibility of a homosexual son. See, I, have, I don't have one of those, but I have lots of friends who do. And if that's true, then you've got to accept the rebuke. But it's not biblical. And it's devastating for someone who's going through that trial. It hurts enough without somebody telling you your child has come out as a lesbian or homosexual or transgender because of your bad parenting. And I actually tried to show one of the editors of that publisher they need to change that. Um, and again, those who have trouble are, are tempted to all kinds of sin. There's a case of a lady named Nancy, and she and her husband had adopted two girls, lovely girls. And that means she quit her job. She homeschooled them. They had family devotions. They were very involved. Like everything they did was right. And yet, first one and then the other got pregnant out of wedlock in their late teens. And when she brought in the second one who was expecting, and she was in the middle of nursing school when it happened, and all their dreams for this daughter, she said, we did everything. And it's like, how could God do this to me? And that's also part of the problem with the formulas, is that you blame God or you blame the Bible when it doesn't work out right. Um, Or angry at the kids, as I, I wanted you to be, as Ted Tripp says, little trophies. And um, you've wrecked me. You know, you've, you've broken my heart. My life is no good. Um, formulas also can, you know, the kids who are behaving, and I think this is significant, children like adults are prone to self-righteousness. Their, their only kind of sin isn't um, to go out and get drunk or have fornication or something. Um, the Pharisees kept the law outwardly. Actually, Caroline's testimony would be it wasn't until we were in college and started studying the doctrines of grace together she really knew she was a sinner because she was the best good girl you'd ever see as a child and through college, uh, through high school. And it was a lot for her because you couldn't pin her on the usual things you would get a high school student on. And, you know, a child can think, well, because I look adults in the eye and shake their hands and open doors for women and you know, I'm polite and eat my vegetables, brush my teeth, go to bed on time. Oh, what a good boy am I? You still may be lost. So we need the gospel. Um, we need the gospel in several ways. One is that we as parents can bear a great deal of guilt that's false guilt. Um, that, you know, you read the books and you know, the, it tells about the perfect dad and he's the dad who you know, provides so the family can live on a farm in a giant house with 10 kids and, you know, he's got a home-based business so he's doing half the homeschooling, takes each child out on a date once a week and all these things and the mother is growing grain that she grinds up and bakes her own bread and, you know, produces her own flax to make clothes in the end and and... you read that stuff and you just feel overwhelmed. Actually, Focus on the Family did a survey and said... The most frequent comment from mothers is they feel like failures. And I think, again, we should aspire. Yeah, I'm very careful now. If I go through Proverbs 31 and say, I'm so thankful to God that our virtue is ultimately in Christ because none of us measure up. That doesn't mean we should ignore the ideal. We should strive for the ideal, but we're not going to meet the ideal. Um, we need God's grace. Um, and sometimes when things go badly, parents just kind of give up. Like, what was the use anyway? And they, they turn all the way. Again, the law alone will not save our kids. They need the gospel. 
and only God can save them. Their works won't save them. Even our parenting works won't save them. And I'm going to give you a couple paradigms of how we bring the gospel into our parenting. And I also want to bring balance. So I'm going to do it in two different ways. And not all this is in your notes. Uh, one is, I think, and that is that we talked about the three elements of parenting from Ephesians 6, 4. And there's discipline, instruction, and don't provoke to anger. And this is something really, the first time I read it was in the 90s when Shepherding a Child's Heart came out. And I really love that more than any other aspect of the book. And that is, you know, under the discipline side, and I think I've heard Tripp talk about it at conferences as well. It's like if your six-year-old lies, you could say, I can't believe you lied. I can't believe a child of mine would lie. When I was a child, I never lied. You know, whatever. And I'm, you know, boy, I'm just horrified that you lied. And another approach would be you lied, you pinched your sister, it's wrong. I'm going to have to discipline you for it. But it's also showing a bigger problem, and that's that we're sinners. And that we need a Savior. <laughs> we need a Savior because we need forgiveness from God for doing the bad things we do. We need a Savior because when you come to Christ, you get a new nature. And you're no longer a slave to those sins. When you get angry, you can have self-control and the fruit of the Spirit. Again, I'm doing it various ages in the way I'm saying it, but we can incorporate the gospel into our discipline rather than just using it as a way of controlling behavior. And then an instruction. Um, a lot of the Bible stories that people tell, I think there's been a real improvement in material for children since I raised my kids. But, I mean, I remember the VeggieTales stuff, and it's David and the Giant Pickle. And, uh, but even the, the, the description of it is like David with help from God and his own self-esteem or something goes out and beats the pickle and it's all about David. And I love in, in, uh, as I've understood the story is that the, the people with whom we should most identify in the story is the people who needed a savior. <laughs> The people who had an enemy they couldn't defeat and they were terrified of, and that, that God raised up an anointed one, Messiah. David was the anointed one who was raised up to defeat the enemy. And it's just like Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 2, where you know, we, we, we were terrified of death and God raised up Christ to defeat death for us. But there are more and more books now for children. In Bible storybook, Kevin DeYoung has one that's come out fairly recently that really not just tell the stories, there to be a Daniel, you can defeat the Goliaths in your life. A lot of that stuff is just a bunch of moralistic therapeutic deism, you know, that you can be a better person. And instead, it's showing you the gospel. Jesus in, in Luke 24 went through the whole Old Testament and said, it all points to me. And so I think it doesn't mean we eliminate the moral parts, but we want to bring out the gospel as we teach our children the Bible rather than just teaching them fun stories or you can be like this. I mean, yes, I should be like David, and I can because of what David and Christ have done. And then even under provoked to anger, um, one of the best things we can do as parents is to, when we sin against them, just admit we sinned and say this demonstrates that mommy got mad, mommy got angry, and I said something very sinful and that's why I need Christ every bit as much as you do. <laughs> Please forgive me. And I've had to ask God to forgive me. And, and to be, the, you know, so I think incorporating the gospel into our parenting is something we can do. Now, there has been this trend toward gospel-centered parenting. I think I actually write about blogs. I've got a little mini book about pendulums where 
we swing back and forth. And, and certainly in the, in my early parenting days, it was all about discipline and not enough about the gospel. There are some people now where they almost saying like, all you need to do is preach the gospel to your kids and there's nothing about discipline. I think that's not biblical either. And I've actually got a paradigm to give you that's kind of from Reformed theology. Have any of you heard of the three uses of God's law in Reformed theology? Um, and the idea being, I'll explain it first in the context of Reformed theology, is that God, when I say God's law, I don't just mean the Ten Commandments. I mean that God has set rules in the Bible. And so people sometimes do it in different orders. They all have the same three things. The first use of God's law is called the civil use. And the civil use is God has established law in culture that government has been raised up, even pagan government has been raised up to punish evildoers, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. And so the fact that we're relatively safe here, the fact there's a policeman with a gun somewhere, <laughs> I mean, you know, that God restrains sin in culture through raising up human government, going back to Genesis 9 and murderers to be put to death. And, and it restrains sin. And when you go to a place without law, you get Lebanon sometimes and Somalia. You know, so the law restrains sin and culture. It's a, a common grace benefit. But then there's a second use of the law, which is what's called the evangelical use. And Martin Luther loved this part. He talked about it a lot. But I think of Galatians 3, I think it's verse 24, where he says, The law is our tutor to bring us to Christ so we may be justified by faith. And the point being that if you look at the law properly, you look in the mirror of the law. I mean, like Caroline did when we were 18. And you say, you know, I thought I was a good person until I realized if I'm angry, I'm a murderer. If I had lust, I'm an adulterer. I've not loved God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. I need a Savior. And so the law has been given by God to show us we need Christ. And so people talk about law, gospel, preaching. I think this is a very important part of counseling in general. But that, And so the law, the rules that God has established, shows us our need of a Savior. The law is our tutor to bring us to Christ so we may be justified by faith, and on my own word, not by law. The law. If you understand the law properly, you'll realize you have no hope if you want to be justified by the law. So that's the evangelical use. And then the normative use is, now that I'm a Christian, as the psalmist says, oh, how I love thy law. And Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And so now you want to know what God says. His commandments are not burdensome. They're your delight because you love God and you want to please Him, and you also trust He knows better than you do how to run your life. Okay, now in parenting. I think that some of the gospel-only parenting puts a great deal of emphasis upon the second use of God's law. I've already covered where when your, parent, when your children sin and break the rule, you say that shows you need Jesus. Okay, that's good. They got that. I think they neglect the first and the third to some degree. It's like all about the second use of the law is no matter what happens, you just keep telling your Children, you need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. Well, if you've got a three-year-old who may not be converted until she's 20, you may need to do something else. And so that's where I think the first use of the law comes in with parenting, is that when it says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of discipline removes it far from him, the reason people generally don't run red lights or steal from convenience stores and all this other is because they fear the consequences. It's not necessarily because they love truth or love God. And so in the family, in addition to always evangelizing our kids, we need to establish discipline to constrain their sin until they're converted. 
once they're converted, then the normative use will come in. If your child professes faith, then you should encourage them to obey God because they love God. But the first use is constraining sin, that God's rules have been given, and we have to enforce the rules to keep the house from becoming chaotic. And so I think, again, I don't want to arrogantly say, and I've got the balance perfectly, but I do think some people have it wrong. And I think when I was younger, the the, the all discipline, not enough gospel in parenting. But we need more than the gospel in parenting. We also need the first use of the law to restrain sin. Uh, To conclude this talk, I'll mention something. uh, I listened to a talk a while back by, it's on the IBC2 website also by Dave Harvey. And it's called Parenting and Weakness. And his text was about Paul's thorn in the flesh. You know, where Paul wanted the thorn to go away, and he says, My grace is sufficient for you, my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Uh, actually, my friend Greg is here, and we were friends when neither of us had kids. And we had started having children about the same time. And I remember in college, when I was first married, we and our friends would say, Man, our kids are going to be amazing. We're going to be such better parents than our parents were because they didn't know half of what we know. And we're going to show just how great we can be by the great children we're going to produce. Well, that's not how things have turned out because we never had the power to do that. And so parenting is something that we thought would be a way we would show our strength. And God has said, no, I'm going to show you how weak you are (laughs) and humble you. And I'll admit, by the way, Like next weekend, I'm going to another place and doing a marriage conference. I love doing marriage conferences because marriage has been going really great for over 43 years. I hate that my wife isn't here. I mean, we're not perfect, but it's going well. I have sad tales to tell about my kids. It's been the most humbling thing in my life. It's something that God has used to give me ministry like this. And maybe out of our weakness and pain, we can help others. But it's hard. And so I think we all, even if you're beginning that God may use parenting not to show you how strong you are, but it may show you how weak and dependent you are. And that may be his purpose, and we have to accept that. And then also, when we see others struggling, we should be gracious towards them and uh, be, also be willing to be vulnerable with each other, even though it's very hard. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... It's perfect wisdom. We acknowledge its sufficiency for everything for life and godliness. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as parents to be humble before you and each other. We pray your mercy upon our children. We know we cannot save them, and yet help us to be faithful as we discipline them, instruct them, and admit our own sin and fight our own sin in parenting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.